thou ever in your mind this seal, which for the present has been lightly touched in my discourse by way of summary, but shall be stated, should the Lord permit, to the best of my power, with the proof from the Scriptures. For concerning the divine and holy mysteries of the faith, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the Holy Scriptures. Nor must we be drawn aside by mere plausibility and artifices of speech. Even to me who tell you these things, give not absolute credence unless thou receive the proof of the things which I announce from the divine scriptures. For this salvation which we believe depends not on ingenious reasoning, but on demonstration of the holy scriptures. You might be surprised who I just quoted. By the sounds of it, you might think someone like John Calvin or Martin Luther, one of the Protestant reformers who emphasized the Latin notion of sola scriptura, scripture alone. But I did not quote any of the reformers. I quoted a man who lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before them, a man by the name of Cyril of Jerusalem, Cyril, who lived and wrote in the late 4th century. This was a man who would give what were called catechetical lectures. And that is, as people were entering the Christian church before they could be baptized, they would have to go through a year-long education program. And he was the teacher of this education program. And he finished, he concluded his catechetical lectures by reminding what we call the catechumen, the learners, that they should accept nothing that he said unless he was able to fully demonstrate it from Scripture. This is a man living in the 4th century, and this is an important introduction for today's Reformation Day sermon. Today is Reformation Sunday, and it just so happens to fall on actual Reformation Day, which is October 31st. We call this Reformation Day because this is the day that Martin Luther posted a public debate to the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther began an attempt to reform the church on October 31st. Now, there were many what we call proto-reformers, groups and people who lived before Martin Luther who made attempts to reform the Roman Catholic Church, and many of them were largely successful, but nothing was quite so successful as what Luther and then the reformers after him initiated and began, and so we sort of consider Luther's posting of those debate articles as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And so we honor that today on Reformation Day, on Reformation Sunday. We sort of celebrate this as a feast day, if you will. It's almost a Protestant holiday. In the last couple of years that I've been here for Reformation Sunday, I've continued to preach sermons that specifically highlight the key important differences between Protestant Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church. And of all of the differences we have, and they are numerous, the most important issues we have are the issues in, in, in regards to authority. Because whatever your religious authority is, that is going to have more impact on your religion than anything else. We can debate about how a person is saved, but ultimately the real question is, how do we know how a person is saved? 
We can debate about who God is or what the church looks like, but we can't debate about who God is. We can't debate about what the church looks like unless we know what our authority is that tells us who God is and what the church looks like. There are no differences more important than the foundations, the issue of authority. And for two years, we have talked about our differences of authority with Roman Catholicism, and I'm going to continue that today by teaching us one important element of the Reformed doctrine of Scripture. We talk about the Bible in the Christian church, but there are many things we can say about the Bible. The Bible has many elements, many doctrines that we confess about it. Let me begin by giving you the three that we actually agree with the Roman Catholic Church on. The Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church agreed on these three elements. The Bible is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. Inspired means the literal rendition of what your Bible, when your Bible uses the word inspired in 2 Timothy 3, the more literal rendering of that is God-breathed. We believe the Old and New Testament are the very breath, the very words of God. That although, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter, men wrote these words, they were carried along and moved by the Holy Spirit. So yes, these are the words of men. But ultimately, and more foundationally, more importantly, these are the very words of God. The Bible is inspired. And so once we know that, once we confess that this is the Word of God, then a lot of things after that follow. Because now those scriptures have to reflect the being who inspired them. So once we establish and confess that it's inspired, we then move on to say, well, it's infallible. What does it mean for something to be infallible? It means it does not possess the ability to make mistakes. The scriptures cannot be wrong about anything. Theological, scientific, historical, the scriptures are perfect. They cannot be wrong. And we confess that because God cannot be wrong. Now, scribes can be wrong. Translators can be wrong. There can be errors in printed versions of the Bible. There can be mistakes as the Bible is copied and translated. But the original manuscripts, the original inspiration is infallible. It cannot be wrong. And so, because it cannot be wrong, it leads to inerrant, which means it is not wrong. We confess that there are no errors of any kind in the scriptures. People will oftentimes confuse infallibility with inerrancy. They're very related, but they're technically different. A document can be inerrant without being infallible, right? I could write a small autobiography, and because I know myself and my own life so well, it could be without error. Everything in my tiny little autobiography could be true. It would be inerrant, but that doesn't mean that I was incapable of making mistakes, right? So that's, an, an infallible, that's a fallible document that happens to be inerrant. The Bible is infallible, which means it cannot make a mistake, and therefore it has no errors. And that's something we all agree on. The Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And this has been the confession of the church up until well after the Enlightenment into modern-day liberal thinking. This has been the universal confession of the Christian church for literally thousands of years. But there are many things about the Bible that the Protestant reformers disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church on. One example is we have a different canon. Canon is the name for the books that you include in the Bible. Now our canon is very similar because Rome and the Protestant reformers share the same New Testament canon. So we all have the same New Testament books, but the Roman Catholic Church has additional Old Testament books that the Protestants do not contain. So we have a different canon. We have a different view of the authority of Scripture. Both sides say the Scripture is authoritative, but just what does that mean and how far does that go? 
The Protestant reformers claim that the scriptures have ultimate authority in the life of the church, in the life of Christians. They said that there is no other authority which can be above or equal to the scriptures. It is the highest authority in all of the church. As the Roman Catholic Church then and today confesses that that is not true. They confess that while the scriptures are the inspired word of God, there is other places to turn to for infallible revelation from the apostles. And those two other places you turn to are what they call sacred tradition. So they look through church history and they look at what men believed in the past and they say whether that's in the Bible or not, you are bound to that. That's the word of God. And they turn to the church magisterium which is a small council of the Pope and some of his other colleagues, and they are able to dogmatically define doctrine and religion for you, and you are bound to those dogmas with the same authority you are bound to the Scriptures. So we have a different view of the authority of Scripture. We have a different view of what we call the efficacy of Scripture, meaning does Scripture change things? Can, can, the, can the Holy Scriptures change a person, change a church, change a country, change the world? We would all say yes to that, but the Roman Catholic Church greatly qualified that. They had a, a far less efficacious view of the Scriptures, and the reason they had that leads us to the point of the Scriptures that I want us to focus our sermon on today, and that is because the Roman Catholic Church then denied what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. The Protestant reformers believed the scriptures were perspicuous. And the Roman Catholic Church denied this. And so the sermon today, I want to give a brief defense of the reformed understanding that the holy scriptures are perspicuous. Let's begin with the obvious. What does that word even mean? What does the word perspicuous mean? It comes from the Latin phrase perspicuous, which means transparent or clearly seen. Transparent or clearly seen. So when someone calls the scriptures perspicuous, they're saying they're clear or their message can be clearly seen. In other words, when we say scripture is clear, when we say scripture is perspicuous, what we're saying is that the average person who's literate, who has a Bible in their own language, can read the Bible and get the gist of it. The, the scriptures are clear to people. You don't need some infallible counsel or infallible pope, or infallible church, or teacher, or academic, or philosopher, or PhD. Any person can read the scriptures and understand them. That God has made himself not just revealed in scripture, but clearly revealed in scripture. The reformed position is that the scriptures are perspicuous, they are clear. But now we need to modify this a little bit because the general way I've just presented it to you is contrary to both the scriptures and just practical reason. Here's what I mean by that latter point. If we say the scriptures are so clear, why do we have so many divisions? Why do we have Calvinists and Arminians, believer Baptists and Pado Baptists, dispensationalists and postmillennialists and premillennialists? Why do we have Lutherans and Calvinists and Arminians? 
Well, because this does need to be qualified. When we talk about the scriptures are perspicuous, the reform position was more nuanced than that. And this sort of now is functioning as the thesis of the sermon today. And that is this, the perspicuity of scripture more limitedly, more narrowly means the scriptures are perspicuous on matters of salvation. The reformers denied that the Bible is perspicuous, that it is clear on all issues. Emphatically, we say it is not clear on all issues. But there are some issues of crucial necessity that God has made crystal clear to every average reader. Let me quote the way the Westminster Confession says it, and then we'll kind of break it down and open our Bibles from there. This is how the Westminster Confession, which is a Protestant confession that we loosely follow in this church, it says this about the perspicuity of Scripture. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. It's a bit of a mouthful, what we call a run-on sentence. But this is important nuance. How would we summarize this? The confession is saying that, yes, there, are, there is much of the Holy Bible that is very hard to understand. You should never feel embarrassed to read through your Bible and say, huh, I don't get this, I don't understand what I'm reading. Or maybe I feel like I do get it, but I don't understand how that fits in with this other thing that I read over here. Like, how do these fit together? There's no shame in that. Why? Because the Bible is a hard book. It's a difficult book to understand. But there are aspects of God's revelation that are clear to both the learned and the unlearned. There are things revealed in this book you don't need a master's degree to get. And those things, the, the confession is saying, are the things which you most need to know. If you want to have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of your sins, you don't need a PhD. You don't even need a good pastor. You just need your Bible. And it even says that the unlearned can have a sufficient understanding of them in due sense of the ordinary means. So in other words, it's, it's still saying you still have to put your mind to it. You still have to try. You still have to study. You still have to give it time. It's not like you just flip it over, boom, boom, okay, I'm saved. So it's very nuanced, it's very modest, but it's crucially important that we affirm this. And so here's what I want us to do today. I want us to see, is this nuanced and modest position, is it consistent with the actual teaching of Scripture? You would hate to say the Scriptures are clear about something, and then the Scriptures actually teach that they're not clear about that. That would be a contradiction. Is this position that the Scriptures are perspicuous on matters of salvation, is this consistent with the Bible's own teaching? And I'm going to say it is. If you would open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is going to be near the end of your New Testament. If you hit 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, or Revelation, you've gone too far. Second Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 14, the Apostle Peter says this, 
Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Let's stop there. This is an amazing passage, focusing specifically now on verse 16. It's amazing for a multiple of reasons. One of them, just as a side note, is here we have the Apostle Peter referring to the Apostle Paul's writings as Scripture, which was the sacred word for God's word. So we have, Peter himself has a cognizant awareness that what the Apostle Paul is writing is on the same authoritative level as Moses. It's Scripture. This is important because modern liberalism wants to tell us that what happened in the first century is just a bunch of religious people wrote a bunch of books and then way down the line, the Council of Nicaea came in and said, okay, these books are Scripture. The Council of Nicaea, by the way, did not talk about the canon of Scripture whatsoever. It's a myth of the modern academic world. But more importantly, here's how we know that's not true. Before this alleged canonization process, before any council sat down and said, let's pick the book of the Bible, we have Peter saying, whatever Paul writes, that's scripture. That's scripture for you. Peter is recognizing Paul, and by extension, implicitly, his own writings as scripture. But notice, let's get more on track now. What does he say about the scriptures in verse 16? He says that in all of Paul's letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, these matters of theology and salvation, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And these are the things that the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here's what he's saying. Paul has things in Paul that are really hard to understand. And there are things in all the rest of Scripture that are really hard to understand. And those are the things that false teachers capitalize on. So the first portion of our definition of the perspicuity of Scripture is established. We are not saying the whole Bible in every part is just crystal clear. That would contradict the Bible. Peter's telling us the exact opposite. Some of these things are hard to understand. The scriptures are not clear alike in and of themselves all across the board. There are some things that are hard to understand. But what does that imply? If Peter says some of the scripture is hard to understand, what's the implication of that? Some of it isn't. <laughs> he doesn't say it's scripture, and as we know, scripture can't be understood. He doesn't say, and, and the, the ignorant and unstable twist scripture because scripture cannot be understood. It's all hard to understand, all of it. No, he says some of it is hard to understand. So what is Peter's mindset about the rest of scripture? It's not hard to understand. So right from the get-go, we have Peter telling us two things about scripture. Some of it is not perspicuous, but some of it is. This is not an all or nothing thing. Some of the scriptures are very hard to understand, but some of it is not. Some is perspicuous, some is imperspicuous. Very, very important for us to know. And this idea that some of the scriptures are hard to understand should not concern us. As a matter of fact, this is exactly why this is consistent with the rest of scripture that we see a need for teachers. 
Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is telling us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but then the church was also given prophets and teachers for the blessing and edification of the church. If the scriptures were completely clear alike in all of themselves, then what need for teachers would you have? You wouldn't need pastors. You wouldn't need teachers. Your scriptures are clear. Just take your Bible, go off in your home, learn it, and you'll, you'll learn it. You don't need any help. And there are many people who have that mindset. There are many people in the Christian church who are anti-authoritarian. Or for, yeah, anti-authoritarian. They despise all forms of authority. They despise all forms of submission. I, I, no way would I ever let a pastor tell me what to think about the Bible. I don't need church history. I don't need those fancy, smancy academics. I don't need a pastor. It's rebellion, and it's contrary to the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell you that there are hard things to understand about this book, and that is why pastors and teachers and academics and scholars and the church fathers, these are all crucial blessings to the Christian church. We need them. We need academics. We need scholars. We need teachers because this book is hard to understand sometimes. Other times, it's not so hard to understand. Before I break into talking about, okay, so what are the elements of Scripture that are not hard to understand? I want to take a step back and say, so what was the Roman position? Because what I've told you up to this point seems kind of crystal clear, kind of obvious. I feel like I'm being kind of redundant, as a matter of fact. How could the Roman position deny this? What is the Roman, the papist position on this? Well, let me read to you from the Council of Trent. This was a council that convened, a Roman Catholic council that convened to anathematize or to condemn the Protestant reformers. And so if you ever want to see the clearest dichotomy between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, you can read the Council of Trent. And this is what the Council of Trent says about this issue of whether or not you should be trusted and allowed as an individual to open up your Bible, read it for yourself, and interpret it for yourself. Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, this council decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall, in matters of faith and of morals, pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses, presume to interpret the said sacred scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and doth hold or even contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers, even though such interpretations were never intended to be at any time published. Contraveners shall be made known by their ordinaries and be punished with the penalties by the laws established. That was also a mouthful. That was also a run-on sentence. Let me briefly explain that. What the council is declaring here is that you, no person is allowed to take the scriptures for themselves in resting them of their own interpretation and of their own opinions, think that they can come up with an interpretation that is contrary to the Roman Catholic Church. And why can't you do that? Because the Holy Mother Church, it is her job to tell you the true sense and interpretation of the Scriptures. So what is the Council of Trent? You can't understand this book. You're not learned enough. 
You don't have the right ordination. You don't have the right learnedness. You can't understand it. So your job is to submit to what the church tells you is in this book. This is a denial of the perspicuity of Scripture in any sense. You cannot trust your own senses to know what this book teaches. So listen to church history. Listen to the church. They will even, modern Roman Catholic apologists will continue this today. They will continue to say things like, well, you know, the Protestants have all their different denominations. So clearly the Bible is not sufficient to teach what you need to know. The only way for us to not be divided is to use the church and tradition as an interpretive lens. You can't interpret the scriptures by yourselves. How do you know you're right? So what you need to do is you need to take the tradition, the glasses of tradition, which the church gives you. Because there are lots of different traditions. The Eastern Orthodox have their own traditions. There are lots of different traditions. So the church is going to arbitrarily and selectively determine which historical traditions are the true ones, make little metaphorical glasses out of them, put them on your head, and you need to read the scriptures through those lenses. And if you don't do that, you're a petulant spirit and should be punished. And this was also, by the way, the very logic that led to the Roman Catholic Church burning Protestants to death for translating the Bible into common languages. Why do you think they would have an investment to burn people to death for wanting to give you a Bible that you can actually read? Because the logic behind that was even if it's in your own language, you still won't understand it. So why do you need it at all? Isn't this the logical conclusion of this? That's why I'll never understand, even today, modern Roman Catholics have Bible studies. Why would you have a Bible study? You are never, ever, ever permitted to believe something about the Bible that the Roman Catholic Church has not told you to believe. So you really, in this system, you don't need it. The Bible is superfluous. Just listen to the church. It's, it's entirely pointless. You read it in interpretation A. The church says interpretation A. Okay, well, you could have just gotten it without reading it. You read it, you say interpretation B, the church says interpretation A, well, you need to change. Either way, you have to go to the church and they have to tell you what to believe. So this just becomes an unnecessary middleman. Why? Because it's not perspicuous. You're not learned. God has not made himself clear in here. You need the Pope. He has the special charism. He has the special gift. It's the traditions of the church that teach you how to read your scriptures. But I want to show you something interesting. Jesus actually dealt with this very argument. Jesus actually dealt in his own day with this very argument. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. Hey, Joseph, I've gotten too excited for Reformation Day. Would you mind getting me a cup of water? Thank you. Although the church would probably be really grateful if I did lose my voice and we had to just stop, but... Thank you, Joseph. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. 
So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let me break this down for you. Jesus and his disciples have gone out into a field and they've begun to eat. Thank you very much, Joseph. And there was a tradition that orally passed through the generations that the Pharisees taught for the people and they claimed that this is a divine tradition that it comes directly from Abraham. That's what they claimed. And it was a special hand-washing ceremony you had to do before you eat. Jesus and his disciples go out in the field and they don't do that ceremony. They break the tradition that came from Abraham. So the Pharisees, Jesus, why do you guys break the tradition? And Jesus takes them to a separate example from something that the Jews know as the Corban Law. The Corban Law was another set of traditions that also were allegedly from Abraham. And what the Corban Law said was that you could take one of your personal possessions and you could dedicate it to the temple. You could dedicate it to the service of God, like kind of like a tithe. Like you could say, the church now owns my car and the church can use my car for whatever it wants. And so here's what would happen. The Jews were commanded in Scripture to take care of their parents. This is in the New Testament as well. Paul tells us that anyone who does not care for their parents, they are worse than the heathens. And so parents would expect to live in their children's household as they got older and could no longer take care of themselves. And so here's something the Jews started doing. They would take advantage of this Korban tradition. And they would dedicate their house to God. They would dedicate their house to the temple. And that means that now God owns the house. And so the parents were no longer free to live in it because it's no longer theirs to give. So according to the tradition, I've dedicated my home to the Corban law. And so now, father, mother, I'm sorry, I know you really want to stay with me, but it's not my call anymore. I've given this to God. And so notice what Jesus does. Jesus says, you've got this alleged oral tradition and Jesus says, I know this tradition is wrong. I know this tradition is blasphemous. I know this is sinful. And how does Jesus know it? What standard does Jesus apply to judge whether this tradition is true or false? Well, look at me with verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Your Bible puts those in quotations. Why? That's the scripture. That's the scripture. So what does Jesus do? Men come up to Jesus and say, we've got this oral tradition. It's not in scripture. It's an extra scriptural oral tradition. And this is from God and you're bound to it. And Jesus says, okay, let me take that and check it by the scriptures. I will know whether this tradition is true or not by whether it forces me to break scripture or not. So Jesus has a scriptural priority. Jesus does not use tradition to judge scripture. He uses scripture to judge tradition. The Pharisees had it exactly backward. And the Roman Catholic Church then and today has it exactly backward. They say, you can't know the scriptures, so you need tradition. And Jesus says, I don't want your tradition until I see it in the scriptures. And so what else does that also imply? Jesus rebukes them for not getting this. He rebukes them. He, he expects them to have read the scriptures and understood them, both here and in verse 8 and 9. 
So Jesus is implying two things. He's implying that the scriptures judge tradition, not the other way around. And he's implying that the scriptures speak clearly enough that they can be used to judge tradition. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus doesn't say this. Why would you break the commandment of God to honor your father and mother? Oh, I forgot. That's because the scriptures aren't clear. You can't read them anyway. Shoot. And I haven't given you the infallible Pope yet. Ah, oh, dang it. How are you supposed to know what the scriptures mean when you don't even have an infallible Pope? Shoot. Well, I guess you guys are off the hook. Jesus expected the Jews to know what scripture is and what it said because it's clear. And he expected them to use that clear revelation of God to test all other things, not to be tested by any other thing. You do not need tradition to rightly interpret the Bible, not in every case at least. Rather, your traditions should be checked by the scriptures. This is why we agree with St. Augustine, who said these amazing words, neither dare anyone agree with Catholic bishops if by chance they err in anything with the result that their opinion is against the canonical scriptures of God. What's Augustine's take on this issue? You should listen to bishops of the church. You should listen to your pastors. You should obey them. But if they contradict scripture, no one should obey them. Scripture is clear. It is authoritative. So we've seen that scripture is clear in some things. We've seen that scripture is authoritative over tradition, not the other way around. So what precisely, where do we get off arbitrarily deciding what scripture is clear about? I'd submit to you it's not arbitrary. Let's look at one more passage. Turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. The New Testament begins with Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 30 and 31 together. This is the thesis of the entire Gospel of John, beginning in verse 30, chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, in which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did a lot of things. He did a lot of miracles. John had to pick and choose. He, just didn't, he doesn't have enough literature. He doesn't have enough books. He doesn't have enough ink to write about all the things that Jesus did. He had to selectively choose what Jesus did. And what was the basis of his selection? Why did he choose what he chose? Why did he write the Gospel of John? So that any person who knows how to read it could pick it up, read it, know Jesus Christ, and have eternal life. John, there are many things in the Gospel of John that are very hard to understand. We have huge debates about John chapter 3, John chapter 6. But there's one thing that is crystal clear, not just to the Bible, just to the Gospel of John. And that's who Jesus is and how you can be saved. 
And it's so clear John wrote the gospel so that any person could pick it up, read it, and be saved. He didn't say, I wrote these things that Jesus did, and don't worry, because 400 years from now, a man named Athanasius will be born, and he'll be able to tell you what I wrote. Don't worry, because 200 years from now, Clement will be made the first pope of the Roman church, and Clement will be able to tell you what I meant in all this. You can't know what I meant, but Clement, he will tell you. Do we have to wait hundreds and hundreds of years for the Council of Nicaea to know what John wrote in the Gospel of John? Absolutely not. The Gospel of John was saving people before any person in that council was ever born. Because the message of salvation is crystal clear in that book. This is why, by the way, so many Christians, if if you've been in the Christian church for a long time, when someone is like a brand new believer or if someone is interested in Christianity, typically a Christian, they say, well, where do I begin? I want to know about Christianity, but I mean, goodness, do I read this whole thing? Oh, yes, eventually. But you want to know typically where we tell them to begin? Read the book of John. Why? Because tomorrow is not promised. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. I want this person to know Christ and know salvation right now. And they can get that with the book of John. They don't need a pope. They don't need a council. They don't even need me. Just read it. Just study it. This is why one of my favorite Christian ministries, by the way, are the Gideons. I love the Gideons. We support the Gideons here. They come in and leave their stuff. One of our elders is a Gideon, Marvin. If you don't know much about the Gideons... They basically do one thing, and I don't say this in a negative way, I say it positive. They, they basically do one thing. They give out Bibles, New Testaments specifically. They're the men that stand on street corners and schools and hospitals and hotels and they hand out New Testaments to people. And you know why I, what I love what the Gideons do? is because they recognize that all you have to do is put a readable Bible into a person's hands and their life can change. It's not saying that it's all they'll ever need. It's not saying they don't need the church, they don't need teachers. They don't. It's not saying that's all they'll ever need in their Christian life. But as it concerns the basics of salvation, you just need to put a Bible in someone's hands and amazing things can happen. A person can pick up a New Testament and read it and they can come to know Christ, be forgiven of their sins and be resurrected with us on the final day. And they don't need a Pope to do that. The Bible does not need much of our help to change the world because it's perspicuous. Let me conclude then with another ancient father, Athanasius, writing in the third century. After summarizing for heretics the Christian faith's core message, he says this, let this, what I've said then, Christ-loving man, be our offering to you just for a rudimentary sketch and outline in a short compass of the faith of Christ and of his divine appearing usward. But you, taking occasion by this, if you light upon the text of the scriptures by genuinely applying your mind to them, will learn from them more completely and more clearly the exact detail of what we have said. For they were spoken and written by God through men who spoke for God. <laughs> 